Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Hopelessly Tatiana. Thank you so much for taking the time to tune in and listen. Today, we're going to talk about week one of the Black History Month calendar. Um, Also, thank you for your patience. This is the new mic, so bear with me on some of the adjustments. I'm Tatiana, and you're listening to Hopelessly Tatiana. Let's dive right in. Hey loves, I really hope that people are enjoying my calendar and are able to see it for the resource I really want it to be. Um, Before I give review of the week, I want to explain my methods for the topics I chose a bit more clearly. When I was deciding what books, movies, and people to list for the month, I wanted to focus on how black people see the world. Um, So I wanted to show that we aren't a monolith and that while some of our experiences are shared, some are different. So my goal for the calendar is to paint a picture of well-educated, informed, and successful people. Because oftentimes when we see movies that become Oscar winners or even the ones that get the most airtime, they tend to focus on the struggle of the people within our community, which paints us as one particular way. And then this impacts how we're seen globally because people who may never have a chance to meet black Americans, they then then reference those movies when they think of us. The number of people I've met who tell me that Gone with the Wind is their favorite movie and that they don't understand why black people are complaining about slavery because the characters in the movie are happy is entirely too high for my comfort level. No, it is not black America's job to go out and correct all these misconceptions, but we can offer assistance um, by highlighting movies, books, and people that better explain our situation and its totality (laughs) Um, and that focus on our accomplishments as well as the struggles because in all things balance so we started this week off um, with the book how we fight for our lives by Saheed Jones oh my gosh this book was faps Like Jones talks about being a gay young black man growing up in the South and he explains what it's like for him before he even understood what his feelings were called. And then he explains the fear of seeing black men that are gay having died of AIDS and how that was impacting him and the way he saw himself. And he talks about his family structure and the fear of coming out to the people that he loves Then he talks about his college experiences and how he saw himself and how other people around him viewed him. I just love the book because it it spoke to me directly. Like I was able to relate to the way he described his family and the impact um, of church on his family or in his family. And I was able to picture his home when he was describing it as if I was there. Uh, And there's a quote in the book that I love so much. Um, I literally stopped listening to the audiobook to write this quote down (laughs) and it goes people don't just happen we sacrifice former versions of ourselves we sacrifice the people who dared to raise us 
Now, I love that quote so much. But if I were to make an adjustment, there is one thing I would change. He says he says we sacrifice the people who dare to raise us. I think we sacrifice the people who dared who dare to love us. Becoming our own person requires sacrifice and sometimes we have to lose family members and friends. And something I've said to many of my friends along the way is that life is struggling. So you pick the place and the people that you want to struggle for. And Saeed's quote to me emphasizes that sentiment. So I highly recommend this book. It was genuinely really a great read. And I look forward to checking out some of his other works. On day two, oh, day two. We discussed Plessy versus Ferguson. Okay, so Plessy versus Ferguson was a landmark Supreme Court case, and it was a doozy. Typically, during Black History Month, we tend to focus on the 1954 case of Brown versus Board, which is the case that focuses on the reintegration of schools. And we talk about Ruby Bridges and how she was a child and how she integrated the schools and the other teenagers who integrated their college or their high schools. So we tend to focus more on 1954, the case that ended segregation of schools. But Plessy versus Ferguson was in 1891. And this is the case that legalized segregation. Now, if you've heard of this case, then you're probably gonna picture a black man. Then you've probably seen the picture of a black man in a top hat sitting in a car, in a train car, and there's a white man trying to protect a white woman from him and i really found this picture interesting because it is (laughs) it is it is propaganda at its highest um it it is why it's why it's why the media can be such a beast my friend the truth is homer plessy was black he was exactly one eighth black So for those who were confused, he was white passing. If you saw him on the street, you would not have thought he was black at all. That's why it was so important that he was chosen to help with this protest. Yes, you heard right. Chosen. This, just like the Rosa Parks incident with the NAACP, was a staged protest i know shocker (laughs) the east louisiana railroad and the new orleans citizens committee staged this protest the reason why plessy was needed was that he was white passing someone who looked let's say i don't know like me would never have even been able to buy a first-class ticket. That's why he was chosen and why they hired a detective to board the train and ask him if he was black. Oh, that's right. Yes, Plessy was black by legal standards. At the time, if you were one-eighth black, you were considered black. Um, This means if one of your great-grandparents was black, you were regarded as black regardless of what you looked like this is referred to as the one drop rule so the detective asked him if he was black 
and arrested him for violating that specific law. After Plessy was arrested, they bailed him out the next day and they continued the court uh, process, appealing it all the way until it reached the Supreme Court, where then there was a seven to one decision that segregation and discrimination on the basis of race was allowed because it did not make black people slaves again. So it did not violate the 13th or 14th amendments. A lot of times when we talk about black history, we talk about how awful the South was and how terrible people who lived there were and how the South was hurting black people. But I want to emphasize that this was not just the South. It was never just the South. Several of the justices on the Supreme Court were from Northern states. And the only dissenting opinion was Justice Harlan from Kentucky, who wrote, I'm gonna read this verbatim, so. (laughs) I am of the opinion that the statute of Louisiana is inconsistent with the personal liberties of citizens, white and black in that state, and hostile to both the spirit and letter of the Constitution of the United States. If laws of like character should be enacted in several states of the Union, the effect would be in the highest degree mischievous. Slavery as an institution tolerated by law would, it is true, have disappeared from our country, but there would remain a power in the states by sinister legislation to interfere with the blessings of freedom to regulate civil rights common to all citizens upon the basis of race and to place in a condition of legal inferiority a large body of American citizens now constituting a part of the political community called the people of the United States for whom and by whom through representation our government is administrated such a system is inconsistent with the guarantee given by the Constitution to each state of a Republican form of government and may be stricken down by congressional action or by the courts in the discharge of their solemn duty to maintain the supreme law of the land. Anything in the Constitution or law of any state to the contrary notwithstanding. (laughs) There's a whole lot to unpack in that statement, so I'm just going to stick to the basics. (laughs) Basically, what it's saying is that slavery as an institution itself will be gone, but the power to create more laws that limit freedoms, liberties, and and rights will remain with the government that this law is creating, and it will continue a sense of legal inferiority to non-white citizens. And he was very right this was his dissenting opinion in 1891 it wasn't until 1954 that brown versus the board undid this particular decision and even now schools and neighborhoods are still highly segregated and there's a noticeable financial gap between blacks and whites 
which is becoming even which becomes even more evident when you think about generational wealth which brings us to present day so we'll talk about day three and how to be an ally after the break If you like this content, have a question, or want to make your opinion known, leave a comment and review on iTunes. If you want to learn more about me and my writing, check out my website, www.hopelesslytatiana.com. Or if you just want to say hi and have a chat, come find me on Instagram and Facebook by searching Hopelessly Tatiana. I'd love to hear from you. Your voice, your life, your story matters. And I'm willing to listen if you want to tell it. Welcome back. Okay, so on day three, we talked about how to be an ally. In truth, this could be its own episode. So I'm going to try to run through this relatively quickly, but I make no promises. (laughs) So let's begin with definitions. Allies are people who support causes and groups they do not belong to. An example, a person without cancer or any ties to it showing support for a group that has cancer. Advocates are people that a cause directly involves and impacts. Another example, a person who is a cancer survivor supporting other cancer survivors. So if you're a member of the group, then you're an advocate. If you're not a member of the group, then you're an ally, okay? When it comes to race-based issues, if you're not a member of said race, you are an ally, not an advocate. I'm not gonna talk a whole lot about the role of advocates, mainly just allies. And this was my, people have said this, but yeah, my significant other is blank. No, 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 you're an ally. Oh, but my spouse is. No, 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 you're an ally. I have a blank family member. No, 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 you're an ally. Someone I care about deeply is, that's great, you're still an ally. If you are not personally a member of that community, you are an ally. If it's a yeah, but you are not a member of said community, and that is okay. That is okay. You don't have to be a member to help. Now there's a quote by Desmond Tutu that I absolutely love. If you were neutral in a situation of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. If an elephant has its foot on the tail of a mouse and you say you are neutral, the mouse will not appreciate your neutrality. I love this quote for obvious reasons. But I love the entire quote. When you just use the first sentence, it paints a picture for anyone that oppressors are all evil or menacing. But life isn't a Disney movie. And most people who do bad things aren't bad people. Which is why I love the second sentence. If an elephant has its foot on the tail of a mouse and you say that you are neutral, the mouse will not appreciate your neutrality. 
in this example, the elephant isn't evil. The elephant isn't purposely trying to inflict harm as far as far as we know. But whether it means to or not, it is. So if you, the person watching, just let it happen, you're not really neutral. The mouse has no way to defend itself against the elephant. So to say that you are neutral is to say that you just don't care about its suffering. So tell the mouse how it needs to work harder to fix this problem or to change its attitude and then do nothing (laughs) to the elephant is also not neutral. In both of these cases, you've chosen your side and it is not the side of the mouse. If you were on the side of the mouse, you would tell the elephant to move. Just that simple. Being an ally of a group requires action. It is not just something that you pay lip service to. If someone claims to be your friend and then when you need them, they're not there, are they really your friend? If you claim to be an ally and then stand by when you see people being bullied, belittled, or mistreated, are you an ally? If you second guess, question, and dismiss someone's experiences, are you an ally? So here are some tips for how to be a better ally. And if the word ally has some negative connotation for you that makes you cringe, think friend. Here's how to be a friend to marginalized communities. Number one, know your privilege. This is not an admonishment. If you don't know where you are, you can't give someone else directions. So you need to know what you have that other people do not have. Two, actively listen. This one is good life advice. If you're in a relationship of any sort, learning act, learning and practicing active listening will change your life. <laughs> this means Listening with the goal of understanding, not being right. If you're listening and all you're hearing is information that you're going to then use to battle it out, you're not listening with the goal of understanding. You're listening with the goal of winning. This isn't a trial. I don't want you just to hear the words. I want you to listen for the feelings of the story. Acknowledging that telling a story that brings someone pain is difficult to do and that anger isn't a primary emotion. So if someone's angry, they're probably hurt or they have a need or expectation that is unmet. So actively listen. Listen for where you can understand the situation and the feelings that that person is trying to describe to you. Speak up and not over. (laughs) If someone from the community is present, then you don't really need to say much. Highlight that person. But if we aren't present, politely correct the person who's being rude. This means correcting your family, your friends, coworkers. It means putting yourself in the position to have uncomfortable conversations. That is allyship. If you see someone being disrespectful and there's no one who's in said group around and you just let it pass, that's not being an ally. And that was a moment where you should have spoken out. Now, if I'm here and I'm talking about black life and then you jump in and you're like, yeah, blah, 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 blah. That's unnecessary. I didn't need, I did not need a backup singer. 
What we need are people who are in the places where we're not welcome, speaking for us there. Now, four, if we are present, let us speak. Like I said, I don't need a background singer. I'm pretty, I'm pretty vocal. When I choose to speak, I do so loudly. A way that you can elevate the speakers of a marginalized group is simply by saying things like, hey, I'd like to hear this person's thoughts if they'd like to share them. That second part is super important because it's a request and not a command. And it gives that person the option to say no, because in truth, having these conversations is emotional labor. And this may be the first time you've had this conversation today, but it's probably not the first time that person has had to deal with this situation, even that day. So for you, what may just be a side conversation could just be the daily toll that someone has to deal with. So allowing them to take a minute and be like, do I want to deal with this today? (laughs) Am I in the right headspace? Is helpful. So request, not command. Five, it's okay to make mistakes. We all mess up in everything. Say you're sorry, keep moving. You know, apologize, learn from it, keep moving. We don't need to dwell on people's mistakes. There's no such thing as a perfect human being presently walking this planet. Therefore, everybody has made mistakes. Accept that as reality. Keep moving forward, okay? Number six, allyship is a verb. Or being an ally, that's a verb. Don't just say you're an ally. You actually have to do some work. Book clubs are not verbs. They're great because discussions like these book clubs, they help give you resources and they continue this conversation, which is important. Knowledge, very important. But if that's all you're doing, let's go back to my cancer example. If I tell you I have cancer, you go, I'm going to start a book club so I can learn more about your cancer. And then that's all you do. You're not helping me at all. I'm happy that you now know what the cancer is but like okay so allyship requires action it's not just learning you learn and then you spread that knowledge in some way you stand up for people you volunteer for organizations you speak out when you can allyship is a verb so here's some examples of actions you can take because this came up okay Like we said before, stand up for people who aren't present. So if someone's not there, stand up for them. This is an uncomfortable thing to do because sometimes it requires standing up to people that you love, but unfortunately it's necessary. The truth is if someone's being rude or disrespectful in your presence, that means that they at least subconsciously believe that you agree with them. And that's a misconception you need to correct they would most likely not say that in my presence. They wouldn't even risk it, but they're comfortable enough around you to say it. That means that they think you agree with them. So you need to correct them. And that's for everything. If I hear someone being bigoted about any group of people, I instantly squash it because just because I'm not in said group does not mean that that action or those words or that situation is tolerable. It's not like period. And I'm going to set the standard that if I'm present, none of this is okay. Like, I don't care if I'm a member of that community. Don't speak to people or about people in that way in my presence. And that is an okay boundary to set. All right. 
it doesn't have to be done disrespectfully it can simply be i disagree with that or not everyone is is like that just set the boundary so people know where you stand next if someone tells you what's happening to them believe them believe them believe them believe them do not start questioning this is not the game of clue you are not a detective if someone is telling you what is wrong that is hard that is hard think of something bad that's happened to you uh, i'll give an example for those of you in healthy relationships i'm very happy for you some of us aren't if you've ever been in a crappy relationship and you went to tell your friends about it and they were like well you know that that guy's always been a dog chances are you didn't tell that friend again because what you were looking for when you told them about what happened was empathy you weren't looking to be corrected you weren't looking to be admonished you weren't looking for some sort of like to be treated like a child you were looking for empathy so believe them do not go searching for ways to prove that they just don't understand what happened believe them that that's what happened if you want to ask questions later when everyone's cooled chill but at that moment do not play the devil's advocate that's just an excuse to be rude don't be a dick cool next when in doubt ask questions now i'm again going to reiterate it is not the job of the black community to educate you so you might add ask a question and then people might be like uh because you know this is real life but if you don't know ask the worst that's going to happen is they'll say they don't want to talk about this right now but they will probably answer it or point you in the direction of a resource so if you don't know ask okay also do research on your own do both of those things but if you don't know ask and last we've talked about it a bit earlier elevate people of marginalized communities you know you can do things like retweet someone's tweets share information um share calendars and podcast episodes <laughs> recommend people for jobs and positions of authority you know there are ways to elevate people within marginalized communities that don't negatively impact you do those do those so those are my tips of active things you can do there are more those are a few tips i have next or number seven respect safe spaces saying things like when is blank history month when is white history month when is my turn that translates into rudeness don't do that that's super rude i know i mentioned that in last week's podcast episode that's super rude and i as a kind human being that i try to be am not always kind and so sometimes those statements will be met with intense sarcasm so don't don't do don't do stuff like that like the fact that i am making a calendar and there are people on this calendar that people don't know there are words on this calendar that trigger people the fact that that exists is proof that this is necessary like we have these events because being a marginal a member of a marginalized community has an actual impact on life so instead of being like when is it my turn think about what that must feel like try to put yourself in the other group's position because it's not always your turn sometimes the reality is that it's your turn most of the time and some of us just want a small chance at the wheel actually we would like a we'd like equal chances at the wheel but we got to start somewhere okay so that means if we want to discuss something don't give them don't give people the side eye when it when they're trying to do it all right number eight 
Remember, issues within marginalized communities are always present, which brings me back to seven. When Black History Month is over, Black issues aren't. So just because it's March or October, that doesn't mean that issues within the community are just like, oh, cool, we'll talk about it in February. That's not, that doesn't make actual sense. So Black History Month is a time in which we highlight people and historical events. It's not the time that we discuss Black history and that's it. We can't talk about it any other time of the year. That's insane. Don't do that. That doesn't make sense. This is real life. I actually had someone tell me when I made the Women's History Month calendar, they were looking at the calendar or last year's Women's History Month calendar. They looked at the calendar and they saw a bunch of black women. So Women's History Month is March. Yes, I will do my best to make a calendar for for next month. Um, And they looked at the calendar and they were like, there are a lot of black women on here. And I was like, yes. And they were like, but Black History Month was last month. And I was like, yes. And they're like, there are a lot of black people on this calendar. And I was like, they're women. And we just kind of looked at each other until she changed the subject. Because the reality is that's exactly how people think. Oh, your month's over. We're done talking about your issues. That doesn't, that's, wow. That's, that's terrible. Don't be that person. Okay. Don't, don't be that person. Don't be the person that becomes an example on my podcast. Don't be that person. All right. So. Part of allyship is asking questions, which I said before, but there's a way to ask questions that does not instantly lead to fights. So first, like I said before, if someone tells you something, believe them. Don't fact check, just believe them. Show empathy first, ask questions later. If you find yourself in constant conflict with people, ask yourself, did you show empathy first or did you start questioning the person's stories? Because if I tell you something and then you start questioning me, now I'm on the defensive. And when people go on the defensive, their behavior is a whole lot less polite. So ask questions after you show empathy. Very, very simple. But yes, ask questions after you show empathy. Empathy first. If you're in the middle of an emotional discussion, that is not a good time to say things like prove it or any variety of you need to convince me because that's a challenge and will therefore be received negatively and probably end poorly. We are all adults. If I can't add, it is not your responsibility to teach me how to add if you don't want to. My lack of understanding isn't your responsibility. Now, I may ask you for help and you may choose to do so, but the burden of educating me is not yours. Assuming so would be ridiculous. I should hire a tutor. It is not, insert marginalized groups, job to educate you. If we choose to, if they choose to, fabulous. Thank them. Don't expect that. Now, this is one that tends to stump a lot of people. (sighs) The main point is to be respectful. If something bad happened to you, how would you want people to respond? So when someone is coming to you with a situation, remember that. So there's this book I read recently whose name I'm not going to state because I don't want you to read it because the book was hot garbage. In the book, it says silence about racism is violence or elevate the voices of the oppressed. 
over your own. Now, the idea was they were trying to present the only two options that exist, which, yeah, no, there's way more than just two options. Those are false choices. It would be like me saying, you can only have chocolate or vanilla ice cream. And we all know that there are a bunch of other choices. Like my personal preference is cookie dough or mint chocolate chip or muddy sneakers. I really like muddy sneakers. I'm not sure if they make that anymore. But anyway, following this idea of there are just two options is not, that's not it. There's There's a whole lot of options. So the tips I gave are just ways for you to help avoid falling into the trap of, well, I did this or I did this. And that's all that there was because that's, that's being lazy. There's way more options than that. Like a lot. Having privilege does not mean that you have an easy life and nothing bad has ever happened to you. That's not what that means. It doesn't mean that um, bad stuff doesn't hasn't happened to you. It, it does not mean that you're living pretty, sitting in some castle with no problems. That is not what privilege means. It just means that you have something that someone else doesn't. You have opportunities that other people don't have. Every single tip on this list is basically the fact that I had to make a list (laughs) is the point. Like every tip here is just showing how we can show respect to each other because that's what this all boils down to. We assume that people have the same lives as us and then we get mad when they don't have the same outcomes and that's just not the case. We don't all start at the same point in life. Understanding that and showing respect, that goes far. If someone walked up to you and said that they just found out that they had cancer, would you correct them on the proper name of that cancer? No. You wouldn't correct their grammar about what they just said to you. You wouldn't question if they were sure or ask them about how they they may have contributed to the situation. You wouldn't imply that the situation was their fault. You wouldn't suggest that your friends form a book club to better understand what cancer is then tell the person how you've done your part by forming a book club you wouldn't attend cancer rallies and speak for that person you wouldn't let people even friends say awful things about cancer patients just because they don't know any you wouldn't say offer things about you wouldn't say that not having cancer wasn't a privilege You wouldn't say that it's the patient's job to educate you on cancer. You would listen to them. You would ask them how you could help. Well, that's what marginalized communities need. We need you to listen and then ask how you can help. Okay, so on day five, we talked about Emmett Till. And I do hate to end the week on a bit of a low note, but it's a meaningful one. (laughs) Earlier this week, we talked about Plessy versus Ferguson. Well, in 1955... 14-year-old Emmett Till from the South Side of Chicago traveled to Mississippi to spend time with relatives. His mother warned him about his behavior and that he needs to his behavior because the South was very dangerous for black people. One afternoon, Till and his friends went to a store where Carol Bryant or Carolyn Bryant, a white woman, was working behind the, count- the counter. The details of what happened inside the store seemed to vary. What we do know is that Bryant accused Till of making lewd advances towards her and whistling at her. And then on August 28th, Bryant's husband, 
and her brother-in-law broke into Till's uncle's home and kidnapped Till at gunpoint. Emmett's uncle reported the kidnapping the next morning. Three days later, the police found Emmett's body in a river, severely beaten and and bloated. Till's face was barely recognizable. Um, Emmett's mother, Mamie, requested that the body be sent back to Chicago. And after seeing the condition of her son, she stated, I want the world to see what they did to my boy. Mamie then made the decision that would influence the course of the civil rights movement. She decided to have an open casket funeral. And Jet and a couple of other local black magazines published the pictures of Emmett's corpse. And then that was picked up by major magazines. And the story of what happened to Emmett Till became national news. And then on September 19, 1955, the trial for Roy Bryant and W and J.W. Millam began. There was an all-white, all-male jury because it was illegal for black people and women to serve on juries. And then on September 23rd, the verdict of not guilty was reached. And the pair then went on interviews, paid interviews, where they admitted to kidnapping and and murdering Emmett and could not be retried due to double jeopardy laws. So in 2017, Carolyn Bryant told Tim Tyson, who was the author of The Blood of Emmett Till, um, that Till never touched her, threatened, or harassed her. Her words were, nothing that boy did could ever justify what happened to him. So she admitted to making up the story. Now I chose Emmett Till because many people have never heard of him. And honestly, it wasn't until 2012 when the shooting of Trayvon Martin happened by Mark Zimmerman that people started to make comparisons between the two young men and how all one did was whistle and the other was wearing a hoodie and how white men took justice into their own hands and then were acquitted of the charges and then went on paid interviews admitting to what they'd done so here we are 50 plus years later and the country is seemingly in the same place black men and young boys are still being murdered by civilians and police officers alike and only occasionally are peoples with the weapons found guilty what type of world must we live in or have lived in for people to have felt comfortable and safe to kidnap and brutalize a boy and then drown him in the river. It wasn't just those two men either. There were family members present at the murdering of Emmett Till. What type of world must we have lived in where a mother would decide to have an open casket funeral to show that whistling at a, whistling should not warrant this sort of death? What type of world must we live in We're going jogging, playing in the park, selling cigarettes, showing a police officer the card he asked for, walking out of a house with a cell phone, walking home from the store, sleeping in your own bed, standing in the backyard of your grandmother could lead to your death. And then 
for the world to view you as somehow deserving of that, for people to try to find ways to justify it, for questions to be asked of the dead mouse's character while the elephant still has his foot on its tail and the bystanders just look on. If you are neutral in a situation of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. If an elephant has its foot on the tail of a mouse and you say that you are neutral, the mouse will not appreciate your neutrality. To that, I would ask, how innocent are any of us who sit idly by, watch the suffering of our fellow men, and do nothing? Thank you for listening. Consider this. If you want to learn, read. If you want to reflect, write. If you want to change, listen. So, thank you for listening. <laughs>